Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. Today, I'm with Thomas Tig, President and CEO of Direct Relief. How are you, Thomas? Good, thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to dive right in. Here we are in Goleta, and Direct Relief is this international organization with such a high profile and prominence, and you are at ground zero. You are so involved with the COVID-19 pandemic response. So I'm sort of hoping you can walk me through what you've been doing and the scope of all of the involvement that you've had trying to help people during this disaster. Yeah, we're doing our best. I think like it's been such a unusual in every respect, you know, from direct release perspective, uh, we got pulled in early into the COVID situation completely unexpectedly in January, where we initially got a call from um, someone whose wife worked at the largest hospital in Wuhan, China, where the outbreak had happened. And this is before it had really blown up or, you know, but there were some early reports of this strange new virus. And, you know, I think in response to that initial request from a guy up in the Bay Area who knew knew about direct relief, we thought, you know, China does not seek or accept anything, you know, foreign assistance um, like. It's very unusual. They're a rich country. They're a proud country. Uh, I was involved when I was in government at starting the Peace Corps program in China. And there was some sensitivity of why, you know, China would have a Peace Corps program there. So for those reasons, we had very low expectations that um, we would be actually asked or permitted to assist in China. But we did have a a good stockpile of PPE at the time. One of the things Direct Relief does is we try to have our version of an emergency stockpile of all sorts of things, uh, from supplies and person protective equipment to medicines, vaccines, because we have such a broad portfolio geographically. We work in about 100 countries a year, and in all 50 states, we have license to distribute prescription medications And because of this chronic gap that exists, a lot of people, even on a normal day, you know, are falling between the cracks. They they need help or medications that they can't afford. So we like to be able to address those chronic issues and have a stockpile if there's an emergency, which there tends to be more and more of over the past several years. For uh, with respect to COVID, there's now N95, the famous N95 mask. This is something that we've routinely uh, stockpiled. We've been the principal recipient of 3M companies' donations of N95 masks for years. And because we're here in California, and for the past four years, the state has basically almost burned to a crisp, we started uh, having our own manufactured in China three years ago, where we went through the registration process to make an N95 mask in bright orange colors, uh, kind of direct relief's color, but we did that so it would never be scalped. It couldn't be resold. It has not for resale stamped right on it and approved by NIOSH. And uh, we did that because we'd seen when these fires break out in California, the public is encouraged to have an N95 mask. So they scramble to go find one and they, they're always sold out or being resold at a high price. So, so we were familiar with the whole mask procurement and manufacturing process because of that. We had a fairly large, I think a million to two million masks in stock or, you know, planned to arrive from China um, when this happened. And we told the people in Wuhan, we, of course, we understand an infectious disease outbreak is dangerous. Uh, You want early detection, early response, contain, you know, uh, the potential spread. And it turned out that uh, we were permitted to go into China. Uh, We went in a big way immediately 
because of this great relationship we have with FedEx, they said, we'll take the plane no charge for you. They have 8,000 employees there, and they understood how serious it was. So as uh, the experience in, this is probably late January, working in China in a large way, and also the first case in Seattle, we had sent, I think on January 24th, a delivery of PPE up to Seattle because they had this kind of uh, anomaly case. And we thought, yikes, you know, that's something that we should hop on. So we sent to uh, the community health centers up in Seattle that we work with on an ongoing basis a tranche of PPE, thinking that, look, if, if this does get bad, we want you to be protected. It's good to, you know, um, to have what you need if this thing gets bad. So at the very, this is before the U.S. government had done anything. I think we had these early signals. We were responding and then trying to move um, as fast as we could at the very earliest stages to do whatever we could to help contain the spread of the virus in China, prevent a further spread uh, by at the community level with the community health centers in Seattle. And since that time, probably 100 days or so, it's just kind of exploded, become a global pandemic. It's everywhere in the world. It's killed 70,000 plus people in the United States, uh, stalled the economy. Throughout that time period, what we've been trying to do is basically what we always do from a medical supply perspective there's been a severe shortage. That's what we do. Uh, we're in kind of, we're a nonprofit. It's all done for free. But the, the role that we play is providing essential medical commodities to people who need them but can't afford them or uh, in an emergency when there's typically a very high demand. So it's really ramped up our activities uh, far beyond anything we've ever done in 72 years. We drew down on our inventory. We were able to replace it um, to some extent, although the shortages have become severe. So basically what we've been doing since the outset was trying to make sure that the communities that we serve, typically in the United States, it's community health centers that uh, serve people in, you know, quote unquote, medically underserved areas, um, which often means low income areas. And people in these low-income areas that rely on the community health centers are always the most vulnerable in emergencies because they, you know, they don't have much access, they don't have much money, they don't have the ability to just leave town if they don't have a car. So that was our orientation. How do we make sure if, as this um, pandemic expands that people who are most vulnerable every day have access to services they need and how do the health workers at these frontline community health centers, all nonprofits, how do we make sure they're protected? So that's really been the intense focus, trying to make sure that the front line that uh, serves people who don't have other options, that they can keep functioning. Because what we've seen in the past is that if those frontline primary care um, facilities wobble or, or close, that just adds pressure to the hospitals. And for COVID, you know, there's been a big effort to reserve hospital capacity for those who fall seriously ill. So that's a long answer to your question, but we've basically been trying to do what we always do, obtain and supply material on a humanitarian basis that's needed. And we've just done it at a far higher volume, bigger scale, all 50 states, many countries uh, already, including in Europe, um, where we were asked to assist because people saw what we were doing and they asked if we could help them too. So it's been incredibly busy. Uh, but, you know, it, for me, it's gratifying because, you know, if I was staying at home and just looking at these big red balls and all the statistics and how scary it is, 
I'd go crazy. You know, here, if you come to work, you have to be focused, you have to compartmentalize. So I, it's a privilege to be able to really focus on the work because it's such a, an overwhelming situation for society. I think it's I'm so sympathetic to just how scary it is for, for everybody. And so it's a privilege to be able to do something focused and gratifying that I'm not just sitting there freaking out about this global pandemic and what it's going to mean because no one really knows. Yeah. The concept of the N95 mask or the awareness of it for people in Santa Barbara and this community, it really rose to the fore during the Thomas fire. Right when everybody had to wear a mask because right. of the air quality. Right. Uh, you know, now and recently, there was you know, initially this direction from the CDC about you don't need to wear a mask to prevent uh, COVID-19. And then that flipped and then they recommended face coverings. And right. so now we have a lot of people, most people should be wearing a mask or a right. face covering. Can you help me understand sort of the availability of the N95 mask? It's, it's been this kind of confluence of events where I think the majority of N95 masks are manufactured in China, as are a lot of other products. It's just a manufacturing hub for the world. Um, but when, because China had the outbreak first, as the largest manufacturer and exporter, uh, first of all, had to redirect the resources internally. Then they banned exports, and then the economies sort of froze up around the world. So you had this uh, trifecta of the main exporter uh, stopping exporting. Um, and as they started, uh, probably after about six weeks of banning any exports from China of PPE so they could focus on the Chinese problem, by that time, the the uh, transportation channels had really frozen up because the economy has frozen up. So you had, a, while, that, while the contraction in supply was occurring and the contraction in the supply chain was occurring, you had this huge global spike in demand for the, those products growing. So here you have a, a, a spike in demand, a contraction in supply and supply delivery cap capacity which caused a massive increase in prices and a lot of people just getting into thinking, you know, they could either make money, panic buying all around the world just to try to go to the same source and compete to purchase what's typically a relatively low cost commodity. I think Direct Relief pays to have a NIOSH approved N95. Uh, it's about 58 cents to have it manufactured and pick up in China. We get it delivered here to the west coast of California on ocean freight containers, which is an efficient way to do it, and then truck it from the port up to Santa Barbara. So we, to get an N95, NIOSH approved uh, direct relief, probably pays about 75 cents. Now they were going for $8. And people, you know, so they just thought this, you know, the, the demand pushed the prices because the supply was so limited. And I think it's, although manufacturing has, um, really tried to catch up with the demand, I think we're still not there because it's a global demand that's far in excess of uh, what the global kind of production capacity has been at that normal status quo level. So it's completely changed the equilibrium and it's catching up because the market forces are really encouraging people to make more. This, the, the signal is very strong the incentive is very high if you think you can make a, a lot of money on a low-cost commodity. And uh, so I think ultimately 3M has boosted their cap 
production capacity by 50%. A lot of businesses have rebooted in China that were manufacturing apparel and other types of you know, articles of clothing to really focus on protective masks and gowns and other things that are basically involve sewing things together, specialized fabrics. So it's getting better, but it's, uh, the prices are still much higher than they were um, before January. Uh, the demand is still far in excess globally of what the supply is providing. And there's this added element of substandard products because of you know, the high prices. People were just getting involved in the marketplace uh, who were marketing, selling, trying to broker things that weren't uh, suitable. So I think it's, it's getting better, but it's not there yet. And our concern right now is the prices that the current you know, market can bear and people are willing to pay is just far in excess of what uh, lower income countries have available to pay. So they're basically priced out of the market and you know they're looking internationally at how mightily the richest country or the richest cities in the richest states in the richest country in the history of the world is struggling to get PPE. You know, you're talking Seattle, Los Angeles, New York City. I mean, these are wealthy areas and there, we've appropriated $2 trillion at the federal level in the United States. Okay, there's no other country, maybe, except China, who could really do that. So it's very sobering as the virus moves southward into the southern hemisphere, how they're possibly going to you know, address the protection of their health workers, the protection of their citizens, uh, because they do not have enough money to do that. So we're trying to do whatever we can to as we started at the early days here at Direct Relief, what are those institutions that serve the people who are most vulnerable? How can we mobilize the private resources um, to get them to where they need to be and, um, and really complement and fill those gaps, which nonprofits often do, uh, or provide a gap-filling role. The gap is way bigger now in the United States and everywhere else. Uh, people who rely, uh, who need assistance because they lost their job, they don't have enough money to get what they need. So it's a real stretch time for Direct Relief and many other nonprofits, as you see from the food banks to, um, in particular here in the United States. Beyond the N95 mask, what type of PPE are, is Direct Relief really distributing out there to, to the communities? It's been different types of masks. There's all sorts of different levels of protection. Um, so we've been providing all of those. Um, a lot of millions of gloves, gowns, face shields, goggles, uh, and surgical and procedural masks, as well as N95s, which are kind of the, the highest level of filtrate, well, you know, N100s or P100s that are basically uh, HEPA or HEPA filters. Um, N95s filter out 95% of particulate matter, 0.3 microns in size. So, but that's typically a standard for a healthcare setting. Although the direct relief masks that we've been providing are really for particulate filtration, not necessarily healthcare suitable. Uh, that the masks in healthcare settings have a liquid barrier element to it that a regular N95 does not. So, the highest kind of best product for a like a surgical mask is both an N95 for particulate filtration. And it's also FDA approved for the healthcare setting. So we've been able to obtain some of those. We had some of those in, in the stocks, but because of the shortage, I think the CDC and the FDA have said, okay, well, 
we'll make an exception to the normal guidance. So just a regular N95 is okay for a health setting for now. And at one point they said, look, if there's such a shortage, just cover your face. Uh, when I saw on the CDC website, use a bandana if nothing is available. I mean, that was a signal of you know how severe in the United States that that would be not really encouraged, but better than nothing. Yeah. And so I think it's still, the marketplace is catching up a little bit, but the shortages are still significant, but they should get better. You can sense that they're selling, you know, just at least the face covering masks for 50 or 60 cents in the local pharmacies and retailers. So I think it's, it's catching up, but it's, it'll be a while before it's back to where it was. You know, here in Santa Barbara County, we have the Lompoc Federal Penitentiary, and it is sort of the source of this massive outbreak of, right. of cases. More than 600, at last count, uh, people have tested positive for COVID-19. And uh, it's not easy to get a lot of information from the Federal right. Bureau of Prisons. Uh, so it isn't necessarily like the kind of information we get daily from right. the county. Has direct relief had any role in sort of trying to uh, help the healthcare workers in that facility? And do you have any thoughts on what's happening there and what could have gone wrong that we'd have such, a, such an outbreak of cases there? Yeah, we, we have actually supplied the prison as well as jails in the, both Santa Barbara and Ventura County, it, it was not hard to, you know, see the risk. You know, if social distancing was the main measure, physical distancing, you know, you're confined, <laughs> you're imprisoned uh, or jailed. So uh, it, it's difficult to maintain that physical distancing in those close uh, cramped quarters. I think the risks were known, but the absence of supply and maybe uh, the lack of planning for this particular scenario um, led to it, but clearly it's a major problem. It's the, the major hotspot in Santa Barbara County, and it's been growing fast. And it's, uh, you know, so I think what you would normally do is, you know, once tested, you do the case tracing that you hear about. That's to see, well, who have you come in contact with in near proximity so we can go test and, and then uh, so you know, test, trace, isolate, treat basically kind of the normal steps in public health interventions. Um, it's hard to do, I guess the tracing is relatively easy in a prison because if they're all you know, so confined, the exposure risk is high, but to isolate them, if, if it's depending on what the physical plant is, it's tough. So <clears throat> we, I don't know much other than we were asked, of course we responded, um, trying to make sure that the health workers, including in prisons, are protected um, because they tend to be exposed to people, at least at the outset, people who were likely to have it because they were displaying all the symptoms. And um, since then, you know, it's been just everyone trying to do whatever you can to isolate yourself, stay at home, and those essential businesses uh, and the workers who go to grocery stores. We've been trying to adjust and provide PPE of not necessarily medical-grade masks, but some protective covering for all those in the Santa Barbara region Outside of Santa Barbara, we're really focused on just the clinical setting, focus on the health workers, both in the community health centers, the frontline primary care centers. But again, we've been backstopping major tertiary hospitals across the country now, not only with PPE, but also specialized medications that we stockpiled for this particular scenario. A lot of ICU patients, we assembled basically a push pack module 
uh, beginning in early February, in early February, where we believed it was likely to the, the PPE shortage was clear as was going to happen, and we thought, well, there's very little influence that we can have on that because we're not we're not able to manufacture it. But what else is likely to get short too? And we sort of ran the scenario of if uh, there's a lot of people who go into ICU, you heard, there's a lot of concern about the availability of ventilators. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got some oxygen concentrators as a, basically a, a substitute to help people get uh, supplemental oxygen. Um, but we also thought, I wonder if they have enough stockpiles of, of medicines. If you go into an intensive care unit, in addition to being on a ventilator, you will be on a medication therapy to help uh, address the severe respiratory infection. So our pharmacist, Alicia Clark, worked with our medical advisory board to de- develop a calculator of what medicines would be needed for one patient for one, you know, say 10-day stay or 14-day stay. What's the full regimen of um, medications? Once we got consensus on that, including from the pharmaceutical companies that we work with, we assembled what we thought was a fairly significant stockpile in February, enough to take care of 50,000 inpatients, the medication requirements. Once we completed that, and as the caseload started going up, they were requested in one day. It was that severe, um, you know, so that's, you know, 50,000 patients for for, for 10 days. Um, so we're now trying to rebuild that inventory because we've released those ICU modules, basically. But it was really nice to be able to have that resource that was predictable and have the early signal that allowed us to put, put it together and get it validated and then have it ready to send out. Because direct relief is here in Goleta, is it a correct perception that the hospitals in this region are better suited with PPE because of what you offer. How much do our local hospitals benefit from the fact that you're right here in our backyard? Well, I mean, we have great hospitals, great primary care clinics uh, from the Santa Barbara Neighborhood Clinics to Sansom Clinic and and all their clinical sites. We're blessed in, in Santa Barbara, South Santa Barbara County to have this array of services, all nonprofit, from uh, Santa Barbara Neighborhood Clinics to Sansom to Cottage, uh, that provide soup to nuts care from very good primary care, including for people who are uninsured, uh, to the finest level tertiary care available uh, at Cottage. We have an ongoing, you know, we work closely with Santa Barbara County Public Health Department, the state of California, to back up the public agencies. because we do stuff every day that they do when they have to, but they're not doing medical distribution every day. And we have these arrangements where if any, really anyone locally, uh, any of the health facilities need help, of course we're gonna do that. You know, we would always um, respond. Fortunately, I think although they had some challenges getting some of the PPE early that we were able to help with, uh, the N95 masks, we were able to provide all of the local facilities with those. Uh, they've been good. They've been in good shape. I think they had uh, the caseloads have been relatively light in Santa Barbara, with the exception of the prison. Um, so we've been really fortunate that they had good a good plan. They have great people. They had a stockpile uh, on site, and they had us as a backup. And the county has, that we also work with, they had their own medical inventory stockpiles that we actually hold here in our facility. So um, so they've been, you know, I'm not sure if 
if we weren't here, if they would have been any worse off, but it's, um, it's certainly these resources are available and we like to make sure that, you know, our local town that's carried us for 70 years, that we do everything we can if necessary. And, and same thing with all the first response agencies, you know, the firefighters, the uh, law enforcement. We work with both the sheriff and the uh, fire departments around the county and the, and the cities. You know, after these, these big fires and the debris flow, uh, it's been an exceptional set of challenges for the public institutions. And of course we back them up, you know, we can't expect them to do things they're not staffed up or have been prepared for, so it's great to step in when we can. So we know Direct Relief has this sort of, you know, impeccable reputation as this um, aid organization. Uh, talk to me a little bit about yourself and, and just Thomas Tighe and sort of how you got to be in this role. You know, take me back to just, you know, when you were sort of starting <laughs> out. I mean, well, were you, did you always sort of have this vision that you were going to be in this role? Or, I, you know, I, what makes when I was putting on my orange high visibility vest this morning, <laughs> my daughter said, did you think you'd be going to work at a warehouse wearing a high visibility vest when you were in law school? And I thought, no, I, I, thanks for reminding us. But, um, but. I was an army brat. Um, uh, my father was a West Point grad who was killed in Vietnam. He was a young officer. So uh, my mom was widowed at age 35 with four little kids. So I was able to uh, go to college and then law school because there were some VA benefits available for surviving children. I was six when he was killed in Vietnam. Um, I ended up going to you know, graduate from Cal, going to law school at Hastings, University of California. And then I went into the Peace Corps as a Peace Corps volunteer, oh, and, yeah. uh, which is not a great career move. You know, what, <laughs> I passed the bar and then, you know, went into the Peace Corps for two and a half years uh, in Thailand as an English teacher, where I promptly forgot everything I'd learned in law school, right, um, <laughs> and tried to figure out how to be a good English teacher to people who, uh, in Thailand. But it was really a terrific experience. I expected to come back and plug in. I, I just knew that if I didn't do the Peace Corps at that time, after having kind of dashed through uh, college and law school, I was going to get on a track and never be able to do it. Um, and I'm, I'm really, you know, I feel fortunate that I did it. When I got out of the Peace Corps, what does one do with a, a law degree in um, passable Thai language ability? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, of course, you go to Washington, D.C. because, you know, <laughs> uh, so I ended up going to Washington, D.C. My older sister was there. Uh, then California Senator Alan Cranston hired me to work on uh, you know, on his staff. He was the chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee oh. at the time. And he also he chaired a subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee and had long handled the Peace Corps. You know, he'd been one of the champions of the Peace Corps in the Senate. Uh, so here I was, a Peace Corps volunteer, fresh out who'd grown up with and gone to school on VA benefits. So he hired me as a committee lawyer on, to serve on the Foreign Relations Committee wow. and to serve as a committee uh, lawyer on the Veterans Affairs Committee, which uh, I did for about five years. And that was uh, really just policy uh, committees in the Senate formulate legislation. They're the, the people you see behind the actual senators kind of scribbling notes at the C-SPAN hearing. So <laughs> I did that. Uh, and it was really focused on policy. And, you know, for in the on the Veterans Affairs Committee, that is really a huge health system government run for people who served in the armed forces and their families. And um, so all the same policy issues that exist broadly throughout society and healthcare, they're 
VA is a microcosm of those, all the pressures and kind of changing demographics and uh, changing health issues and new technology. So I knew nothing about that, but I you know, was involved in uh, that was my job to learn about it and, and help advise and staff out the committee work. And on the Foreign Relations Committee, because there was absolutely zero competition, I became the resident expert on the Peace Corps. You know, oh, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, new guy, why don't you do this Peace Corps stuff, right? <clears throat> um, people don't fight for that portfolio. You know? <laughs> As someone said, you realize that no one in the country votes for their member of Congress or their senator based on how that member or senator votes on the Peace Corps, right? And I thought, well, thanks for that totally depressing thing. I love the Peace Corps. I was in it. so. Um, but I learned a lot about you know the, the, the legislative process as it relates to foreign aid and the Peace Corps. When Bill Clinton was elected, I was asked to go down to the Peace Corps headquarters, uh, basically to work as a liaison with the Hill as an assistant general counsel. And then after a year and a half, I was made the chief of staff and the chief operating officer of the Peace Corps. Uh, so responsible for the day-to-day oversight of the the federal agency that you know I had just been a volunteer in five years ago. So I thought it was a really bad idea to put me in that role because I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I was told to look around. You're in Washington. Who else knows what they're doing? So just don't screw up too bad. <laughs> that was, that was the, the, with a little more colorful language. So I, I did that. I played that role uh, you know, at the Peace Corps for uh, five years. Mm-hmm. the day-to-day oversight of a federal agency. And I learned a lot about, I knew the policy side, I knew kind of the ground level view in the Peace Corps, but all the considerations of how to make sure that taxpayers' money is well spent. Just because something is a good idea, like the Peace Corps, the, the mission is is noble, it's not an excuse for wasting money. If you're a taxpayer, so you have to make sure it actually does a good job, which was a very good background to for direct relief when they were looking for someone to take uh, on the role that I occupy, you know, I had kind of a grounding in health. I had uh, experience in international stuff, and uh, it was—it felt very familiar. It's basically—I still think it is. It's direct relief is basically public service done privately. All the considerations that you would go through my mind as a public servant in government—they're all relevant here. You have to—you know—if there's an ethical grounding, you have to do something that makes sense for the public benefit. Transparency is expected and required, but you're private. You're using people's money and you got to show value for that money. You got to report to them. So it was um, a great mix of, at a purpose level, it felt just like government. At a functional level, it was just like a business. You know, Direct Relief has an amazing board of directors all with, and a tradition of having, um, from the founders on who were business you know, they were refugee immigrants who were business folks. So blending those practices and the thinking of how businesses operate, how they make good decisions and, you know, save money or drive value, marrying that approach with this altruistic notion of humanitarian service. You know, I've been here so long now, I've just internalized that, of course, that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, um, that's how I got here. And had no idea that I would be here as long as I have, almost 20 years, but it's been um, nothing but you know, rewarding. Great people to work with, amazing volunteer board of directors, a town that's kind of abundant, in a microcosm of really everything that you, all the major issues in the world, uh, from environmental issues to social issues. You know, Santa Barbara was 
what, what, what is now California was Mexico not all that long ago. So all those tensions that come from cultural and historical and uh, linguistic, the melding of California um, to be in a position that we can do something productive with no political agenda, without any affiliation with religion, purely for humanitarian purposes has been deeply rewarding. And just to see kind of the generosity of spirit this is my job now. I get paid to work here. But to see how many people whose job it is not want to get involved mm. purely on a voluntary basis, either financially or serving on a board or a committee, it's constantly inspiring. So I work in all these tough places. Um, people think, oh, God, how, you know, how is it? Is it really tough? And I thought, no, I mean nothing but totally motivated people yeah. who are just trying to do something good. Yeah. I come home and turn on the news half the time, and I think <laughs> then it's depressing. Right. You know? It tends sometimes to just emphasize the, the most horrific things. But where do, where do you think you you got that desire for humanitarian service? You went to law school. You could take a lot of paths after that. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned you lost your father when you were six. Uh, did you have a moment in your time when you said, "I'm going to help people for the rest of my life," as opposed to uh, just going out and sort of being a CEO of a corporation and trying to go that route? Yeah, no, I, there wasn't any, you know, aha moment. I think it was probably a series of directional paths. I mean, you come up to choices all the time in life, and I think I kept taking the one that ended up leading here, <clears throat> ultimately. But I think growing up in, you know, in a military family and kind of the, kind of, I didn't have a chance to know my dad very well because I was a little kid. But that notion of, you know, it's important to serve your country serve other people. I think uh, that probably was became ingrained in me in ways that I wasn't even aware it was becoming ingrained at the time. I also, you know, went to, uh, grew up and going to Catholic school, so I'm kind of riddled with guilt, but I, I'm good at grammar sort of thing. You know, it's a, uh, uh, but this was old school nuns with the, you know, so, um, but I think that there's a strong element in the, in the religious tradition of service. So I think it was, probably more unconscious than conscious, but my family didn't have any money. Grew up, you know, widowed mom with four little kids. Um, yeah, fortunately for me and our family, when my dad shipped out for Vietnam, he had to take some language instruction at the Monterey, you know, the Defense Language Institute before he left for Vietnam. So although I was born in Wisconsin and had been moving around, we, we rented a little house in Palo Alto, which at the time was a small, sleepy college town. So when my dad was killed, we ended up staying in Palo Alto, so that's where I grew up, um, and which is now kind of Palo Alto. It's extremely wealthy, you know, all these big companies and the tech world was sort of, sort of focused there. But when I grew up, uh, late 60s throughout the 70s, it was a small, sleepy college town that was like, you know, the Wonder Years, that, you know, or something, a TV show was kind of this bucolic little town, um, which was a great place to grow up. COVID-19, how has it affected you personally? You have some kids and you've, uh, we've all had our lives dramatically changed in terms of how we move about and move through the world. How have you been impacted in sort of your, your day-to-day? I think it, like everyone else, I think it's this huge shift of um, personal behavior and how you, you know, stay safe, make sure I have... Um, I have three kids in college, um, or that when this happened, and one son uh, who's graduated in Brooklyn, New York, uh, 
after graduating from NYU. So that being a dad and, you know, um, having a hundred colleagues at work uh, and just trying to see, you know, of course, how do you take care, make sure that everyone's safe? My daughter was at Barnard College in New York. Uh, her older brother was in Brooklyn. She's a sophomore. So this is when the outbreak happened. That, you know, it was you know deeply scary for all parents. And uh, so trying to figure out how to get her home, uh, that was kind of be, has become the epicenter for the outbreak. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know we try to get the family unit all together. Um, and make sure we could, you know, we knew we had to keep working at Direct Relief, so what were the adjustments that we needed to make here to make sure that we were doing what, you know, we were encouraging other people to keep your workers safe, make sure the environment is safe. We made all sorts of adjustments, early work at home. We have a strong technology backbone, but not every, we run a warehouse operation doing medical distribution, so we had to split our operational team in two, quarantine half the building so that there would be no potential for you know uh, infection spreading out throughout the building intensified cleaning um, and you know but so for us it's been fortunate we've been very busy but you know I think this uh, the desire to flatten the curve of viral transmission and fatality rates it's really flattened every curve it's flattened the job curve, the economic growth curve. I mean, just stay at home. I mean, so I think it was uh, that has had massive ripple effects economically and socially. And I think we're trying to groove through it together as a society and looking to, you know, our elected leaders who pulled that big lever, stay at home, how they're trying to incrementally dial it back so we can keep that the curve we wanted to flatten flat but have some of the other curves start to go up, um, like economic activity, education. I mean, it, it clearly can't go on like this forever, but it's a tough one to walk back safely. And we're, from Direct Relief's perspective, we have so many points of contact. Uh, you know, we've provided more PPE to more places than any organization in the world in the last 100 days. You know, every state... We have thousands of points of reference that we can draw from. So we're trying to have our research and analytical team model some of this. You know, what, what signals are we getting here at Direct Relief that are unique to Direct Relief because we're doing all this activity and trying to feed that into um, some modeling that our research team has been sharing with states. Uh, we have a strong relationship with um, some of the tech firms. Uh, and that's just been a whole new, intense, uh, expansive set of research and analysis that our team members have been doing that has been actually feeding daily kind of mobility reports up to the governor's office in California now, mayors and governors in about 17 other places too. So that's, among other things, that's uh, been a big piece of work that has affected, I guess, our organization because it's new work, but otherwise just trying to keep it together and do whatever we can, make sure that we can perform our, the role that we play be a good neighbor in our home community and keep everyone that we care about as safe as we can. Before Mm COVID-19, you were obviously dealing with all sorts of issues around the world. What are you doing? What are your hotspots for direct relief around the world in terms of helping people who were dealing with issues before all of this and uh, will be continuing to deal with issues? Um, What are some of the hotspots around the the world that Direct Relief has still got to be focused on amid all the COVID? Yeah, no, it's a great question. That that question in particular is one that um, 
we've been trying to really get some focus on because you, you know, we saw this in Ebola. You know, you can't really, you, you have to focus on this crisis. You have to put out the fire. You have to throw, but you can't forget that, uh, you know, if a, a woman's expecting to deliver her child, that can't be deferred. So you've got to accommodate these uh, existing needs for health services. And if you don't, while focusing on the new crisis, forgetting about the old chronic and the, the old crises, it's going to be far worse. So trying to make sure that you do both, not just uh, exclusively. So we've been doing that on an ongoing basis. You know, we've had uh, been trying to really support through in a networked way the midwifery movement around the world the, the, where kids die um, needlessly and moms die. Uh, for preventable causes. I mean, it, it's largely in Africa and low-income areas, midwives being, well-trained midwives who are properly equipped is the single best intervention. Statistically, all the research shows it. So we have this ongoing push to make sure that uh, we do whatever we can to bolster and make sure midwifery in areas of high need is strengthened. So we developed a the global standard for a midwife kit with the International Confederation of Midwives. We've been working and just launched before COVID um, uh, came about uh, a really exciting program for us with uh, Texas Children's Hospital and Teva, the Israeli, the largest generic manufacturer of drugs in the world, to give um, an opportunity for children who are diagnosed with cancer in Africa a a far better chance of survival because right now I think the fatality rates 80 or 90 percent um, for a, uh, a child who's diagnosed with a childhood cancer in Africa. Here it's an 80 percent survival rate in the United States. We have the St. Jude's and all these great research. So um, we know the modern medicine works for childhood cancers. It's just not available in Africa. So we got this consortium together and we launched it and then here comes COVID. So you know it's so we're trying to keep that going. Uh, that's going to be in seven countries. It is going. And just the ongoing press of need. There's a chronic gap that exists in the United States, in Santa Barbara, in the world, where people just need help, which is why Direct Relief exists. Um, and so we're trying to not abandon those as we're, it, it's got to be additive, not substitutional. So we're trying to maintain our, <laughs> kind of the flow of support that we're, we've been giving and uh, continue to give while adding on a new capacity, that pushes you to become more efficient. You know, you just have to figure out how to do things differently. And that, you know, kind of necessity being the mother of invention, well, we got a whole bunch of necessity here that requires a whole bunch of invention to how do we do more, because um, we have to do more, because COVID-19 is adding a tremendous uh, health risk, and but you can't do only that. It's got to be reconciled with these other things that we know are important, including in health. And we're doing the best we can. I think uh, you know our team was running the numbers. The fact that since January um, of this year, you know we've done over ten thousand deliveries. You know, which is a huge volume for us, just in the United States alone, almost ten and a half thousand. So, and that's up like 50 or 60% of, from what we had done a year ago, which was the biggest, most active year ever. So during a time of massive contraction of everything, we've been expanding 
in every way conceivable, which has been um, a stretch, but very gratifying to be able to do something because, you know, the status quo has clearly shifted. So you got to shift everything along with it. Uh, new thinking, new approaches, new techniques. Um, it's not going to go back soon to the way it was. Well, thank you, uh, Thomas Tig. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're an amazing person, amazing well, organization. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sort of talk to people about all the important work you're doing. Well, my thank you very much. That's overly generous of you to say. And my apologies to your listeners who had to be subjected to <laughs> my rambling for 40 minutes, about, including about me, which I never talk about because it's not particularly interesting to me. But, um, but thank you. And my apologies. <laughs> so. Oh, I found it very interesting. So uh, you can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. Thanks to Kiva Cowork for supporting this podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Have a great day. My pleasure.